Well, welcome to the Parkway Church, where sometimes electricity works. Uh, last week we talked about uh, common grace, uh, which is, uh, we talked about uh, grace that God gives to all of humanity, that He gives food and drink and joy and laughter and marriage and all of these sorts of things. Uh, he causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust uh, alike. Uh, This is a biblical principle we want to uphold, we want to treasure, all of these kinds of things, that there is this common grace that God gives to all humanity, regardless of whether or not you are in covenantal relationship with Him, just simply by virtue of being uh, a part of creation, you are a recipient of what's called this common grace. But at the same time, uh, in addition to God's common grace, there is a special grace that God reserves uh, for His people, for those that are His particular people, those that are in covenant with Him, those that He has called to Himself. And so He causes the sun uh, to rise on the just and on the unjust. But sometimes, like in the story of Exodus, He causes the, uh, the sun to go down on the land of Egypt, and He causes the sun to stay, uh, to remain shining on the land of uh, Goshen. And so what we're talking about today is this special grace that God gives to His people. In fact, this is the grace that actually makes us into God's people. And it's called election. That's what we're talking about today. Election is kind of one side of the predestination penny, if you will. So uh, election is predestination unto life, predestination unto justification, predestination unto salvation. On the other side of that coin, you have uh, what is called reprobation, which is predestination unto judgment, predestination unto death. That is not a fun topic whatsoever. Uh, So we're going to have Zach teach it next week. If anyone can make reprobation sound cheery, it's him. We're going to give him Red Bull and a Bible and just let him go. And so come back next week. He's also, by the way, anything that I say today that's confusing, he's going to clarify next week. That's his promise to you, that you will walk away next week understanding election and reprobation and all those kind of things and have... uh, have no questions whatsoever. Uh, but seriously, this is probably one of the most difficult topics and doctrines in all of Scripture. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to spend four weeks on it here in Theological Equipping. And just uh, by the sovereignty, the, the providence of God, it actually coincides with where we are in the book of Romans. As we get into the latter half of Romans chapter 8, as we get into Romans chapter 9, we're going to see uh, a similar sort of uh, theme emerge as we'll talk about uh, God's sovereignty in the work of salvation and, and those kinds of things. And so we'll actually be spending quite a bit of time in uh, kind of discussing this particular doctrine over the next few weeks. And so if it feels like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, don't worry. Just get whatever you can this morning. Get whatever you can next week. The, the, uh, the water is going to be running for quite some time. And, uh, and so uh, with that said, we're probably not going to actually get to Q&A 
this morning. So I know that you're going to have questions, but one of the things that we want to do is we want to kind of allow this topic to develop over the next four weeks and, uh, and allow it to develop in our preaching as we're going through Romans 8 and 9. And, uh, and so we'll do Q&A on the other weeks, and then we'll also have an entire uh, theological equipping class where it's just Q&A. And so uh, any questions that you have that aren't resolved over the next uh, few weeks, then uh, you'll have ample time to discuss those. And if you just can't wait, if you can't wait till next week to ask a question, uh, then just come grab us after the class, after the sermon, whatever it might be. Uh, hit us up during the week. We'd love to, uh, to help you out. So let me start with a definition. This is uh, by Wayne Grudem. He says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And most of the time in, uh, in theological equipping, whenever we give some sort of definition, it's a definition that all Christians would agree on. So whenever we give a definition of the Trinity, it's the definition that the church has always agreed on ever since uh, 325 and the Council of Nicaea. Whenever we give a definition of the hypostatic union, it is the formal definition that all Christians have agreed on since 451 and the Council of uh, Chalcedon. Uh, but this morning, what we're talking about, there is no agreement. Think about how divided our country is when it comes to political elections. That's how divided the church is when it comes to the topic of theological uh, election. And, uh, and so, as a result, what you have is uh, you have these sort of competing visions of what uh, election is and, uh, and is not. And so, Throughout church history, what you have is you have a number of times where there are these disagreements that take place in the church, and out of those disagreements, there is clarity that's brought. So think of the first century and how all, there's all of this disagreement over what role does the Mosaic law play in the life of a, uh, a believer. In, in, uh, in particular, what role does circumcision play? So in the first century, the church is wrestling with the issue, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Out of that question comes all of the deep Pauline theology about the doctrine of the gospel and the law and all of these sorts of things. In the, uh, in the fourth century, the church is really wrestling with the deity of Christ. Uh, is he actually uh, God himself? And, uh, and so out of this wrestle comes Nicaea in our definition of the Trinity. In the fifth century, we have the same thing with the, the, the two natures of Christ. And, uh, and so then we have this doctrine of the hypostatic union. And so uh, what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to give you 15 things that you should believe about election, 15 things that you should know about uh, election. And what those are basically doing is they're kind of uh, forming boundaries, if you will. Each of these is kind of like, I don't know what a 15-sided thing is. Uh, they don't teach you that in school, but like a pentagon is five-sided. Whatever a 15-sided thing is, is what we're talking about this morning. And it's really kind of found, uh, forming the boundaries for us as we understand uh, election. So let's, uh, let's dive in. So 15 things you should know about election. The first one, and all of these are on your uh, sheet, by the way. The first one, everyone who believes the Bible believes in election. Everyone who believes the Bible believes in election. Occasionally, I'll get an email and it'll say something like, do you believe in election? It's kind of like sometimes I'll get an email that'll ask, do I believe in Halloween? 
And I say, yes, I believe Halloween exists. In fact, that's my wife's birthday. There's no way that you can dispute whether or not uh, Halloween actually exists. The question is, what do you believe about Halloween? Is it a time that you should dress up uh, in scantily clad clothing? Is it a time you should dress up like a demon? All of these sorts of questions that you would need to, uh, to wrestle with. But everyone believes in Halloween, that it exists. Likewise, everyone believes in election, but what they believe about it, how election works, what election is, why election uh, exists, all of these kinds of things are going to be uh, distinct. So you can't believe the Bible and deny that God elects. You can just debate the how and the why. Let's look at a few different passages, and again, you should have these uh, in your notes. Romans eight twenty eight. for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Remember, election is one side of the predestination penny, as we said, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Later on in Ephesians 1, in him we have obtained an an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And this is not just a Pauline soapbox. This is not just something that Paul discusses. We see it elsewhere. First uh, Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Matthew 24.22 And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So even Jesus himself, Luke 18, 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And we could go on and on and on with a number of other passages uh, that uh, talk about election. So everyone who believes in the Bible believes in election. It's just what do we believe about election? And so the next 14 points are really clarifying what it is that we believe about election. Second thing, that election is about the glory of God. Election is about the glory of God. You might come in here this morning thinking this is somewhat irrelevant. This is dull. This is academic. This, is, uh, this doesn't stir your affections whatsoever. You just want to love Jesus and love people. You don't want to do all this theology stuff. Why does this even matter? Well, there's a couple reasons why it matters. First, because Scripture teaches it, and God expects His people to know what Scripture says about all things. And uh, in fact, that's part of discipleship that Jesus says uh, to, to uh, make disciples, and to, part of that is to teach them to observe all that I have uh, commanded. And so the first thing is that God teaches it. Therefore, it's good, it's edifying, it's necessary for us to understand, but also because this is so tightly wound uh, and tightly bound to, uh, to God's glory. Consider 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're a chosen race, and that is related to God's glory. Ephesians 1, 6, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You could also translate to the praise of the glory of his grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved 
Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, in him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So election is about the glory of God. In fact, in, uh, in the book of Exodus, if you remember the story when Moses is there up on the mountain with the Lord and Moses says, please show me your glory, Exodus 33, 18 through 19. And God's response is, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So this is the response. When Moses says, show me your glory, this is God's response. And what's interesting is this passage then, God's response, when Moses says, show me your glory, this response is then quoted in Romans 9, 13 through 18. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, here's the, here it is again, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, in some way, this freedom of God to exercise mercy on whomever he desires is foundational to understanding his glory, which means this is super important for us. So whether you agree with the way that I'm going to teach election, the way that Parkway believes about election, whether you agree with that or not, the one position you can't take is that this is somehow peripheral. This is tertiary. This is unimportant. Uh, this is just the things that people do in ivory towers or whatever it might be. Uh, this is, if the glory of God is the overarching and undergirding sort of reality that should direct your life, then your understanding, your ability to walk in obedience is somehow bound up to how well you understand uh, this topic. So this is not inconsequential because the glory of God is not inconsequential. So that's the second thing. Election is about the glory of God. Third thing, election is not merely corporate, but also of individuals. Here's what I mean by that. Some people will say that God elected the nation of Israel, or they elect the church corporately, but not the individuals within. And, uh, and so kind of the illustration is that God elects that there's going to be a Super Bowl. He elects that whoever wins the Super Bowl is going to get a ring, but he doesn't actually elect who actually wins the Super Bowl. That's kind of the uh, illustration. So God elects that there's going to be a church, but he doesn't actually elect the people who compose the church. He elects, he chooses that there's going to be a church, and he chooses that anyone who is a part of the church is going to be saved, but he doesn't actually choose who the participants are uh, within uh, the church. The problem with that is biblically, we see that God doesn't simply choose the church. He chooses the specific individuals who would comprise the church. If election, as we'll see, involves forgiveness and reconciliation and atonement and all those things, then this is applied to particular people and not just to groups of people. In Romans 9, as we'll get to in, uh, in a couple of weeks uh, in our, our sermons, you see these different individuals that are mentioned. We just read a couple of them, Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh. 
They certainly represent other people, so Pharaoh kind of represents Egypt, but Pharaoh is still an individual that faces the consequences of God's wrath. Jacob represents Israel, but Jacob himself is still a recipient of God's grace. And so even though they stand, they represent bigger realities than just themselves, they still represent individuals. Consider Romans 8, 29 through 30. We're talking about individuals here who are predestined. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, people are being predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So election is not merely corporate. It's also individual. Next, fourth thing. Election is unto salvation and not merely service. So while God does elect Moses to serve as the leader for his people, God elects, you could use that word, God elects Aaron to serve as a priest. He elects David to serve as a king. He chooses them for these particular ministries, but he also elects people for salvation and life. So it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's not either God elects people for salvation or he elects people to service. This is what some people will uh, say is that they say that God just elects people to serve. He elects certain people to be the king. He elects certain people to be priests. He elects those kinds of things. Biblically, though, we see God elects people for actual salvation. At the end of Romans 9, going out of Romans 9, uh, which we've just read a little bit of, uh, into Romans 10, uh, we see uh, Paul write this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it's clear that he's talking about salvation. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And he's talking about righteousness, which in the context of, uh, of the book of Romans is always about justification and salvation and these sorts of things. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved in the Lord, uh, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, not just to serve, but to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7. We've read this before. We'll keep reading it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. For what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see all the different things that are linked to predestination there, adoption, sonship, um, redemption, forgiveness, all of these sorts of things. And as we read uh, before in Romans 8, uh, 28 through 29, 
that we are predestined and we're called and we're justified and we're glorified. So it's not merely that God elects people to serve, although He does. He's sovereign over all things, but He's also sovereign over uh, uh, the issue of salvation. He's sovereign over uh, our response to, uh, to grace. That's the fourth thing. Fifth, election is not an arbitrary or capricious choice made by God as if there were no reasons why he chose some for eternal life but passed over others. He's not playing, as I've heard one pastor say, duck, duck, damn with, uh, with all of humanity. That's not what God is, uh, is doing. God has his reasons. He has reasons for why he chooses some and not others, but the reason that he chooses some and not others doesn't lie within us. The reason he chose Jeff Ashley is not because of Jeff Ashley. The reason that uh, he chose Logan Catlin is not because of Logan Catlin. The reason uh, that he chose, uh, you know, on and on we could go around uh, the room. The reason that he chooses us is not something that lies uh, within us. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're prettier or richer or because we chose him. It's not because we were going to choose him or anything else. So why did God choose this person and not this other one? The Bible has said it's because of his good pleasure and because of his will that he does, does so. And why was he pleased to choose this one and not another? We only know that because it's not because of anything that lies within us, but because of his gracious uh, glory and splendor. Look at Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There's a purpose of his will that's related to predestination. Ephesians 1.9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. He has purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God doesn't do anything arbitrarily. He doesn't do anything capriciously. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. He has his reasons those reasons just don't terminate on something about us. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, not because we're richer, not because of any of these sorts of things. And as we'll see, not even because we choose him or because we were going to choose him. That's the fifth thing. It's not arbitrary or capricious. Sixth, election is grounded in the love of God. This is probably one of the most difficult uh, of these points for us to really believe. Because when you first hear this doctrine, it kind of makes God seem cruel. It makes God seem unkind. It makes God maybe seem a little bit uh, unjust. And yet Scripture says the exact opposite. Scripture grounds this reality of election in the love of God. In fact, election is loving whether we understand how that is the case or not, Scripture is going to uh, say that it is. In fact, I would argue that your ability to grasp God's love is somehow is going to always hit a ceiling if you don't grasp this topic of uh, election because it's always going to terminate uh, somehow on you. God loves me because of this, which if you no longer meet that condition, all of a sudden your life begins to, your hope begins to unravel. Rather, God loves you, and therefore he has elected you. And uh, so why did God choose you and not others? Because he 
loved you. But you might say, but doesn't God love everyone? And I would say, yes, in some sense, he does. There's a really helpful little book. I highly recommend it to you. It's by a guy named D.A. Carson. Uh, you might have heard us talk about him before, and, uh, and so he's kind of a, a modern theological uh, hero of mine, and uh, he wrote a helpful little book called uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Uh, again, highly recommend that to you. It's a little booklet, and in that book, he differentiates between the various types of divine love, and so you and I can relate to this. So I love Larkin. That's my daughter. I love Casey. That's my wife. I love my mom. She's in this room. I love my brother. He's in this room. Uh, I love all of you in some sense. I love tacos, right? I love all of these sorts of things, but each of those are somewhat different. The way that I love different things is different. Likewise for God. God loves rocks, but he loves his son different from the way that he loves rocks. And God loves all of humanity And what D.A. Carson is arguing in this book is even within God's love for all humanity, he has a distinct special love for the elect. We see that in uh, in Romans 9.13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the word hatred there doesn't quite carry all of the connotations it might uh, for us, but at the very least, it's the distinction between the love that God experiences for, uh, uh, for Jacob versus what he uh, feels for, um, uh, for Esau. So there's a distinction there. There's, a, there's a, uh, an, a level of intimacy and a relationship with Jacob that doesn't exist with uh, Esau. And that might seem, again, that might seem on the surface to be really uh, harsh, but actually it's really, really good news if you think about it. It's really good news if you think about it. Why? Because... At the end of the day, you do not want God to love you the exact same way that he loves unbelievers. You don't want God to love you the same way that he loves Judas. You don't want him to love you the same way that he loves Pharaoh. Because for whatever way that he loved Judas, he still allowed Judas Judas to betray him and to fall away. Is that the kind of love that you want? No. You want the kind of love that's going to tether your heart to him, that's going to overcome your resistance, your apathy, your rebellion, your disbelief, all of these sorts of things. You want a stronger love than this sort of generic love that that, uh, God has for all of humanity. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture, this sort of overcoming love that he has, the kind of love that says, you are mine no matter what. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Because he loves you with a distinct electing love, he predestines you for the purpose of adoption. And he says, nothing is going to get in the way of my love. Nothing is going to get in the way of my love. His love isn't reactive. He's not sitting back waiting for you to do something so he can love you. His love is proactive. It initiates and overcomes. I thought of this as I was prepping last night. I thought it's kind of funny, but God is kind of like Rick Astley. You familiar with him? The guy that sings, never going to give you up. That's like God's love, never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around or desert you. That's the kind of love that God has for the elect, the kind of love that overcomes. That's the sixth thing. Election is grounded 
in the love of God. Seventh, election is an eternal decision and decree by God, a choice he made before any of us ever existed. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, before God founds the world, he has already elected his own. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is also part of, uh, by the way, part of what he means in Romans 9, 10 through 13, where it says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's part of what he means there. But though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, that this is an eternal decision and decree by God. Eight. So that said, the election is an eternal decision and decree by God. That said, election is not based on God's knowledge of your future faith. Faith isn't the ground of election, it's its fruit. Faith is the fruit of election, not the ground, not the reason for election. It isn't the cause of election, it's the effect. We don't get chosen by God because he foresees that we're going to choose him. That's what a lot of people think of uh, election. They think that God gets into his DeLorean, he gets that baby up to 88 miles per hour, he goes into the future, he looks and he sees, he sees this person is going to choose me. So then he races back before the foundation of the world and he decides, I'm going to elect this person. I know this person was going to choose me and so I'm going to then choose him. And the reason that they argue on the basis of this uh, sort of uh, reference to uh, uh, what God sees in the future is because Scripture talks about election related to this word called of foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29 through 30, we've read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestines. They would say, there, there you go, there's foreknowledge. God foreknows, but what does he foreknow? Does he foreknow what you're going to do? Is that all that it's saying there? He foreknows that you're going to choose him, and so he goes and predestines you. And I would argue, no, that's not what foreknowledge means. It's not simply that God knows what you're going to do. It's that God knows you. And those are different. Does God know what you're going to do? Yes, God knows everything. But that's not what the word foreknowledge means. Let's see how that word is used elsewhere. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or 1 Peter 1, 19 through 20, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So now, when the Bible says that uh, God foreknew Jesus, does that simply mean that God knows what Jesus is going to do? Well, no. Does God know what Jesus is going to do? Absolutely. But God ordained it. God planned it. And part of that being foreknown is a relational sort of term. That's the way that the word knowledge is often used uh, throughout Scripture. 
So imagine that you're reading in Genesis and it says that Abraham knew Sarah. Well, you know, based on context, typically after that, it says Abraham knew Sarah and, uh, and they gave birth to a child or something like that. You know that whenever it says that Abraham knows Sarah, it doesn't simply mean Abraham knows Sarah's favorite song, Abraham knows uh, Sarah's favorite color or something like that. It means uh, that Abraham knew her in an intimate way, in a relational way related uh, to marriage. That is the connotation of knowledge in Scripture. It's often not just some cognitive reality, but it's a, a much more familial sort of intimate uh, term. In Amos 3.2, God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your uh, iniquities. So does God, is God saying there that he doesn't even know that the Egyptians exist? You only, of all the families of the earth, Israel, you're the only one that I know. I didn't even know that the Egyptians existed. I didn't even know that the Assyrians existed. No, obviously that's not what he's saying. He says, you only have I loved. You only have I been in covenantal relationship with. You only have I chosen. That's what it means when God knows. And so when God foreknows, it doesn't just foreknow your future faith. That's not what it's saying. It says he foreknows you. He chooses you. He loves you before the foundation of the world. So when, it re when we read that we are foreknown, it doesn't just mean that God knows the future, although he does. It means that God knows you. It's a relational, intimate term. By the way, again, this is part of why uh, the argument in Romans 9 that we just read, before they were born or had done anything good or bad, is, uh, is so strong. Before they were born or had done anything good or bad. In other words, it's taking what uh, Paul is intending to do there in Romans 9, is taking all of the reasons for why Jacob was chosen and not Esau, and taking those out of Jacob and Esau's hands, and putting them solely in God's hands. So election is an eternal decision and decree by God. We talked about that in point seven, point eight, but election is not based on God's knowledge of your future faith. Faith is, isn't the ground or the cause of election. It's the fruit or the effect. Number nine, election doesn't render the whosoever will believe irrelevant or false. It doesn't render the whosoever will believe irrelevant or false. If you believe in election, you still believe God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ will be saved. Election doesn't deny that. The election doesn't disregard that. Election answers the question, who will believe? That's what election is going to do. John 3.16 says, whoever, whosoever believes will be saved. Election is just simply asking the question, who will believe? Who would ever believe? In the context of John chapter 3, if you read that in context, it will say things like uh, that uh, people hate the light. They love the darkness. So how in the world would we ever believe? Or in John 6, in the notes here, John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. The will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But just a few verses prior to that, he had said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. But look at that first part of the passage. All that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, not all are given. If all that are given will come, then not all can be given or else all would come. Does that make sense? So not all are given. In fact, that's what, John, uh, that's what Jesus says in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, doesn't that simply mean that God draws everyone? No, because if God drew everyone, then John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me would mean that everyone would come. So you see here, God doesn't draw everyone. God doesn't give everyone. It's true. Whoever believes will be saved. Election just simply asks, uh, answers the question for us. Who will believe? In John 3, before uh, that uh, famous verse 16, John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In order to understand what he's saying here, you need to understand in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God is not merely some future reality. We talk about it uh, all the time as being a, an already, but not yet. We tend to think of the kingdom as being something only future. So we think Jesus is saying that uh, unless you're born again, you cannot see eternity. And he is saying that, but he's saying more than that. He's saying you can't see the kingdom right here, right now. You can't see me, in other words. You don't understand who I am in my uh, ministry unless you are born again. So he's not simply saying that you can't go to heaven unless you're born again, although that is true. He is saying you can't be saved unless you are born again. You can't even see the kingdom. Why? Because you're spiritually blind. Go back and think about what we've talked about over the past uh, few months as we've talked about total depravity um, that you're blind, that you're deaf, that you're uh, senseless, that you're resistant, that you're rebellious, that you're stubborn, you're hostile, you're hateful. The Bible would even say you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So how is that overcome? How can a dead person go to Jesus? Election is answering that question for us. To be saved, you must go to Jesus. But to go to Jesus, you must have your heart awakened by the Spirit. In John 3, you must be born again. By the way, you might have heard growing up, you might have heard that if you believe, you will be born again. That's a, that's a reversal. That's an inversion of the biblical order of things. It's not if you believe, you will be born again. It's if you are born again, you will believe. Until you're born again, you can't believe. Why? Because you have a heart of stone. heart of stone doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't love Jesus. So you have to have a, a heart of stone that's replaced by a heart of flesh that then loves Jesus, finds him lovely and good and right and all of those kinds of things. So election doesn't render faith and repentance unnecessary. Election is what makes them possible. Faith and repentance are absolutely necessary, and yet they're produced in the heart of the elect individual by the secret, sovereign, mysterious work of the Holy Spirit in which he regenerates the soul and works to overcome all resistance to Christ, enabling the previously hostile heart to see and relish and to take supreme delight in the beauty of Jesus. So that's the ninth point, that election doesn't render the whosoever will believe irrelevant. It makes it possible. 
10, election does not mean that some people who want to have their sins forgiven and want to love God, but instead they go kicking and screaming into hell. We talked about that in the previous one, that all who truly want to come to Christ are saved because wanting to come to Christ is itself an evidence of election. It's an evidence of the Spirit's enabling work. Theologically, no one seeks for God unless God has already overcome their resistance to seeking. Look at John 3, 20 through 21. For everyone who does wicked things, remember this is in the context of John 3, 16. God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is in the same context of that, same context of also you must be born again. John 3, 20 through 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light. In the context of uh, John's gospel, Jesus is the light. Remember, Jesus stands up and screams, I am the light of the world. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, hates the gospel, hates Jesus, hates God, and does not come to the light, does not come to the gospel, does not come to God, does not come to Jesus, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, even his coming to the light is birthed out of God's grace and mercy. What then? Are we Jews any better off in Romans 8? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, and on and on we could go. The idea that there is someone out there who genuinely wants to love and trust Jesus, their only problem is that they weren't elect before the foundation of the world, and now there's nothing they can do about it, doesn't exist. That person doesn't exist. No one wants to love Jesus unless God creates that desire in them by giving them a new heart, which he does for his elect. So nobody goes kicking and screaming into hell. We want to be separated from God. We don't want torture. We don't want suffering. We don't want these kinds of things. But we, the one thing that we don't want the very most is we don't want God. We don't want to submit our lives to him. We don't see him as lovely or good or right or anything else. That's number 10. Number 11, election is not unfair or unjust. It's perfectly, perfectly agreeable to God's justice, but we might need to change how we understand justice. We, think, we tend to think of justice as something that kind of stands over God. God looks upward, sees what the just thing to do, what the unjust thing would do, and then he decides to do whatever it is that's on the just side, what's on the right side, and we're getting things incorrectly. Justice is something that flows out of God. It's not something that stands over God. In fact, by definition, anything that God does is just. That's what justice is. That's what righteousness is. It's anything that's in accordance with God and, uh, and his uh, word and will. By definition, whatever God does is just. But this is the question that comes up in Romans 9. And, uh, and so we'll spend some, uh, some time on this in a couple of weeks as we get into that chapter in uh, our sermons. But Romans 9, 14 through 18, what shall we say then? Is there injustice 
on God's part. In other words, this seems unjust. By no means, though, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Skipping down to the conclusion there. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, I think Paul would argue that whatever glorifies God is what is just and right by definition. Since election is grounded in the glory of God, uh, as we've seen, then by definition it is just. By the way, as we get into Romans 9, one of the things that I think is really helpful for us is recognizing if the objections that you have as I talk about election or as I talk about predestination, you have these objections that say, uh, well, is God unjust? Or you have an objection that says, well, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? If these are kind of the things that are happening in your heart, what's interesting is uh, those objections are the exact same objections that Paul says you're going to have to his teaching. In other words, if you understand election, it's probably going to produce these objections initially, originally, which means that uh, what we're saying about election is probably right on track with what Paul is saying about uh, about election. If your understanding of election is that God chooses those who choose Him, you wouldn't then bring up the objection, well, is there injustice on God's part? That doesn't even seem unjust. It doesn't seem unjust for God simply to say, I will choose whoever will choose me. That doesn't seem unjust. It wouldn't bring up the objection. The fact that you have the objection that Paul says you're going to have to him seems to let us on to the idea that we're on the right track. So, oftentimes, though, what we're doing whenever we make this critique is we're not really objecting to the issue of justice. Instead, we're objecting to the issue of fairness. We don't think it's fair, and in some sense, it's not fair, but what we don't want is what's fair. In fact, grace is unfair. Mercy is unfair by their very definition. We don't want what is fair. What is fair is for God to condemn everyone. That's what's most fair. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We want mercy, which by their very nature must be free, can't be earned, can't be deserved, can't be anything like that. God can be under no obligation when it comes to His grace and mercy, or else it isn't grace and mercy. Next point, getting close to the end. Take a deep breath. I need a deep breath. Election does not undermine or negate the importance of evangelism and prayer. Election is what assures us that our evangelism or missions or prayer will be successful and our prayers powerful. If God ordains an end, He ordains the means by which that end is attained. So for instance, let's assume that I'm a uh, a legitimate believer. And uh, and so at uh, the age of 23, I actually come to faith. Uh, Well, God didn't merely ordain that at the age of 23, I was going to come to faith. God ordained that for years, my mom, my great-grandmother would pray for me. God ordained that for, uh, for weeks, I would be invited to church. God ordained that I would be invited to a little men's Bible study and that they just so happened to be doing the one thing that would get me to go to a men's Bible study, which is that they were playing competitive flag football immediately afterwards. God ordained all the little steps uh, that leads to the end. 
He ordains the means and uh, the end. And so if anything, election should bolster our prayers. Why? Because we're actually asking the one person who can do something about what we're asking for to do something. So imagine for a second, imagine that we don't believe in election as I've just described it. And instead, we believe that election is just simply God chooses those who choose him. And now imagine that you have a dad who's not a believer and you pray for your dad. What are you asking God to do? You're asking him to do the one thing that you don't believe that God does. You don't believe that God will overcome someone's free will. So what are you asking God to do? You're asking him basically, I know that my dad is blind, but I want you to appear in front of him. I know that my dad is deaf, but will you speak to him? And instead, what I'm saying, what the Bible would say about election is you're not asking God simply to put a sign in front of a blind person or to speak a word to a deaf person. You're you're asking God to give a blind person eyes to see. You're asking God to give a deaf person ears to hear. That's totally, totally different. So election doesn't undermine or negate missions or evangelism or prayer. In fact, some of the greatest evangelists, some of the greatest missionaries have believed in this view of divine election. Just a list, a few of them. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, I mentioned in my sermon uh, last week, probably the greatest theologian, greatest theological mind, greatest philosopher that America has ever uh, produced. He was kicked out of his church uh, eventually for standing for uh, orthodoxy, and, uh, and then he went and ministered among the uh, Native Americans at the time. George Whitfield, one of the other leading voices of the, uh, the Great Awakening, both in America and in England. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Baptist Preachers. By the way, although today most Baptist churches uh, do not view election in the same lens that we do, historically, uh, nearly all Baptists viewed things the, uh, the, the way that we are describing them here. So there was a, a shift with the Second Great Awakening uh, in terms of how people uh, thought about this topic. William Carey, the father of the modern missions movement, uh, missionary to India. David Livingstone, you've heard uh, Dr. Livingstone, I uh, presume, famous missionary to Africa. Robert Morrison, the first Protestant missionary to China, the first to translate the Bible to Chinese. Adoniram Judson, missionary to Burma. John Stott, founder of the World Evangelization Conference. Uh, the, the modern president of the International Missions Board, David Platt, John Piper, author of one of the best books I've ever read on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. Even John Calvin uh, sent missionaries throughout France and as far away as Brazil, which is pretty far from uh, Geneva. And so speaking of Calvin, this is the 13, 13th point, this view of election is called Calvinism. I wanted to wait until the, the end to use this term uh, because it's off-putting for some, and I think there's a lot of misconception about what it actually entails. There's three different ways that you can understand uh, election. The first one, that God elects those who are good. This is typically called Pelagianism. We've talked about Pelagius before. Pelagius is a heretic. Pelagius, boo. Pelagius, bad. Nobody likes Pelagius, right? Um, so that's, the, that's obviously not correct. Then you have two different views that says God elects those who are bad, but they're distinguished from each other. So you have Arminianism, which says God elects those who are bad, but will choose them, uh, will choose him of their own free will. That's Arminianism. And then you have Calvinism, which is God elects those who are bad, and this election 
causes them to choose him. So which one's the cause? Which one's the effect? Do we choose God because he chooses us? Do God, does God choose us because we choose him? Calvinists say that we choose God because God has chosen us. Arminians say God chooses us because we chose him. That's the only difference. Both camps, both sides are going to agree God chooses us and we choose them. The question is which one's primary, which one's secondary? Which one is cause, which one's effect, which one's ultimate and, uh, and decisive. And so, by the way, the, the, the boundaries between Pelagianism and, uh, uh, and Calvinism or Arminianism are like a, an international boundary, all right? We're talking about completely different countries, all right? So, if you are Pelagian, you are not a Christian. But when we talk about uh, the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, we're talking about state boundaries, all right? Uh, someone from another state like Oklahoma, they're still uh, an American technically, they're just less sophisticated, <laughs> right? Likewise, if you're Arminian, you can still be a Christian, absolutely. You just are perceiving this particular issue uh, in a bit, a bit of a uh, kind of distorted uh, manner. And so at, let me be clear, at the end of the day, neither I nor any of the elders here care that you call yourself a Calvinist. That is not in any way our goal. Our goal is that you be a biblicist. It just so happens that on this particular issue, we think Calvin's view is the biblical view. And so for that, uh, for that reason, I don't have a problem with calling myself a Calvinist, although I disagree with Calvin on a whole lot. I disagree with him on the issue of paedo-baptism. For most of the church, most of my theological history, uh, heroes have been paedo-baptists because for most of the history of the church, everyone was a paedo-baptist. And, uh, and so I don't hold that uh, against them even though I don't uh, disagree. And so you have Calvin, you have Arminius. Uh, by the way, if you are not a Calvinist and you are an Arminian, it's not an Armenian. That's an ethnic group from the nation of Armenia. It's also not an Arminianist which is a made-up word that people who don't know the real word uh, might occasionally use. So this view that we've described today is, uh, is what Calvinism is. If you've heard a caricature of Calvinism before, that they just believe that God chooses and that it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter if we choose or not, that's not what Calvinism says, all right? Calvinism is simply this, God chooses and we choose, and the reason that we choose is because God has chosen us. God's choice is the cause. Our choice is the effect. God's choice is primary. It's ultimate. It's decisive. Our choice is reactive. Does that make sense? God overcomes our resistance. He gives us a new heart. That new heart then chooses him. But the order is absolutely important. The difference between Calvinism and Arminianism is not in uh, There's a shirt. I used to have it. It says, uh, Calvinist, this shirt chose me. And on the back it said, Arminius, the, I chose this shirt. That's not the difference between, Cal it's a funny shirt, but it's not the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. Both believe God chooses and we choose. The difference is which one is cause and which one is uh, effect. And so this is called unconditional election. If you've ever seen the uh, acronym TULIP, uh, we've talked about a few of these points before. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, which we talked about a few weeks ago, irresistible grace, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, and then perseverance of the saints, tulip. That is, uh, that's Calvinism. And, uh, and so again, doesn't mean that we agree with everything or that we worship Calvin or anything else. It just simply means uh, that we agree with his view. By the way, he didn't invent this. 
He's, Calvin is kind of like um, uh, Isaac Newton or Benjamin Franklin. They didn't invent you know, gravity or electricity or something like that. I hate it when people say Benjamin Franklin invented electricity. Right? No, he just simply discovered it. He articulated it. Likewise, this is not something that originates with Calvin. In fact, this particular view is also shared by Martin Luther. It's also a view that's also shared by uh, Augustine. And uh, so go all the way back to him, and then I would argue going all the way back to Paul and to, uh, to Jesus. So this view is called Calvinism. At its simplest level, number 14, the election means that we choose God because God has chosen us. As we said at the beginning, everyone who believes in the Bible believes in election, but what do they believe about it? That's the question. Everyone believes that we choose God and God chooses us, which is primary and ultimate, which is uh, decisive, which is the cause and which is the effect. Again, to simplify, Arminianism says that God chooses or elects those whom he knows will freely choose him. Calvinism says none will freely choose him. Instead, we only choose God because he has chosen or elected us. John 1, 12 through 13. We're almost done. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the Father, uh, nor, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our being born again is not of our own will, the will of man or the will of the flesh, but of God's will. As we read in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come unless the Father draws, but maybe he draws everyone. We saw John 6, 37, that's not the case. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So follow that logic. If it's true that everyone that the Father gives to Jesus comes to him, then it must be true that the Father has not given everyone. And if he hasn't given everyone, then he hasn't drawn everyone. So God's giving and drawing are the cause of our coming and believing is, uh, is the uh, effect. By the way, we will work through some of the implications again over the next uh, couple of weeks, but just moving on for now. So number 14, at its simplest level, election means that we choose God because God has chosen us. Last thing, God loves election and therefore so should we. When the Bible says that election is according to God's will, it means, among other things, that he enjoys this, that he loves this, that he delights in this, that he relishes this reality. God enjoys election. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Let me read through Ephesians 1 one more time for you, and you can see the language of God's delight in this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I find it to be a pattern uh, in people that are first exposed to this uh, doctrine. At first, there is this logical resistance. Uh, at first, it kind of begins up here, and, and you, f- you, you experience this uh, innate sort of resistance. This kind of cuts against our American sort of idea of, uh, of liberty and, uh, uh, and freedom and those kinds of things. It also kind of cuts against our fallen sinful a desire for autonomy. We don't want to be ruled by God's will. We want to be ruled by our own will. And so it begins up in uh, the mind. But eventually, uh, I think if you study it long enough that the mind can't resist the overwhelming biblical support for this particular view of election. And so eventually the mind kind of gives out. But then the struggle becomes a struggle within, uh, within the heart. You find that it's true, you realize it's true, and yet it still feels kind of harsh and unloving and unkind and ugly and honestly a little bit uh, embarrassing. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to encourage you, come over the next few weeks. Uh, if, uh, if you need more help in addition to that, come and chat with us. Any of the elders, any of the staff members, we would love to help walk you through this, recommend resources, sit down for coffee, whatever it might, uh, it might be. There is this pattern that tends to happen where it takes a while for you to embrace it here, and then after that even, it takes a while for you to embrace it uh, here in, uh, in the heart. But eventually, if you can overcome that, if you can stick with it, uh, then you will find that there is a, uh, a door that opens in your heart and in your mind to the glory of God that you have never experienced before. And all of a sudden, this thing that once you found to be unlovely, once you found to be embarrassing, all of a sudden becomes something you begin to relish, something you begin to be excited about and you begin to enjoy and you want to tell others uh, about. And so that's my encouragement uh, to you Um, You don't have to agree with what we've talked about to be a member here at Parkway, but I think you have to agree with what we're talking about in order to go into the depths of what God's grace really entails and what His glory really entails. And so I want that. I'm I'm jealous for you to experience that. And so I want to pray uh, to that end, and then we will be dismissed. While I'm praying, if you're serving in uh, preschool, if you would go ahead and make your way out if you're still Uh, in here, and uh, it's not embarrassing or whatever if you get up while I'm praying, but uh, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for uh, your grace and your goodness. I thank you for your word, an opportunity to uh, consider it this morning, just confess, even as Peter says about Paul's writing, he says that uh, there are certain things in there that are difficult to understand, and if it's difficult for the apostle Peter to understand Paul's writings, it's going to be difficult for us, and so I pray for your help. I pray not merely that we would embrace this with our minds, but that we might embrace it with our hearts, that we might see that it's lovely and good and right and beautiful and true. And, uh, and so I know that uh, in a room this size that we are all over the spectrum, 
in terms of what we believe. Some of us in this room might have been super encouraged by today. Some of us might have been super discouraged. And so I just pray for the work of your spirit who is able, uh, because he is omnipotent, uh, he is able to meet us individually where we are and give us what we need. And, uh, and so would you help us? Would you help uh, our little church to grow in our understanding of your grace and goodness, your under, uh, our understanding uh, of the glory of election, that we might delight in it? Let's pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.